sorts of tea about what's going on inside Washington, D.C., what regulators and lawmakers are thinking and working on, and what you and your credit union should be evaluating in terms of risk areas and areas of opportunity. I'm your host, Ann Petros, also Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at NAFQ, and today I am joined by Brian Lauer. He is a partner with the law firm of Messick, Lauer & Smith, and general counsel for NACUSO. Brian is an expert on CUSOs and credit union relationships with third-party service providers, so he can offer some great perspectives um, on the NCUA's recently finalized financial innovation rule. So thank you so much, Brian, for joining me today. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I'm, I'm excited as well. I'm sure you've been getting a lot of questions about this uh, financial innovation rule. So let's just dive right in. Um, what you know, could you what would you say is you know the general scope and intent of the final rule on financial innovation? Um, you know, for example, what does it do? What does it not do? What do our listeners and viewers need to understand about the rule? Sure. So you know, the interesting thing about the rule is, as you refer to it, as the financial innovation rule, right? And really, this rule is related specifically to lending. So it's, you know, we often get a question of, like, why is it the financial innovation rule if it's about lending, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, usually when we think about financial innovation, we think about fin- fintech and, and financial technologies. And the interesting thing about this rule as it relates to fintech and financial uh, technologies is that we're actually enabling credit unions to have better access to loans to their members that are being made in the financial innovation space, you know, fintechs that are tackling maybe unsecured loans or solar loans or home equity loans and renovation loans, all these kinds of things you see uh, out there in the financial technology space. Well, those fintech lenders and originators are not really balance sheet lenders. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is they don't necessarily want to hold those loans at all on their books. They don't want to hold that risk on their books at all. And so what this rule is going to do is actually allow credit unions to have better access to those loans, developing relationships with those fintechs in order to purchase those loans from the fintechs, their member loans, and hold those loans on their books and potentially spread the risk from those loans uh, to other credit unions within the within the uh, the credit union industry. So that's really where this that's where the rubber meets the road in many ways with this rule. That's the real innovation, the real value, and what we're really excited about with this new rule. So what it doesn't do is allow for uh, credit unions to get more. So credit unions can only purchase member loans from these fintech innovators. So one of the blind spots here is that there's a memorization aspect to all of this that really still is a friction in in the system. And so what it doesn't do is eliminate that friction in any way. It makes it a little bit better. So it's, it, you know, it's becoming less friction or, 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 or it, there's not as much friction as there was before, but there still is that friction of, you know, what do we do with a FinTech that doesn't want to think about membership, doesn't want to be concerned about membership. Right. And then you have this issue of, if you're not concerned about membership, how do you make borrowers members after they've already closed the loan? 
generally you need to be able to make that borrower a member of a credit union during the, the origination process when you have them signing documentation and agreeing and consenting uh, to things. So that's sort of the area where uh, there is still some friction and that this rule doesn't tackle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point. You know, the the memorization aspect of this is critical. Um, but, you know, reducing that friction, I think, is a much broader question about field of membership generally. So maybe we'll get there someday, but not with this rule, not right now, at least. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we could we could see in the future maybe in, uh, uh, some some guidance on maybe being able to purchase loans that from borrowers that are eligible for membership, right? So you confirm that they're, you know, in the geographic region of that credit mm-hmm. union, or you confirm that they are, you know, an employee or a member of a particular association or group, you know, and maybe they're not members today, but you can purchase them because they're eligible for membership. That could be some flexibility that we could get in the future. You know, again, not necessarily changing the NCUA's perspective on field of membership, but just saying, you know, they don't have to be a member, they just have to be eligible for membership. That could be something we could work on in the future. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a helpful change. But of course, um, you know, the biggest issue with field of membership is is pushback from from the bankers. So I would anticipate some frustration. if, you know, we were to, to head down that road. Now, what really was, you know, the impetus for, for this rule? I mean, you mentioned, obviously, these lenders are not balance sheet lenders. And so there was a need for credit unions to, to step in and obviously reach, you know, a, a wider swath of their communities in terms of, of lending um, and potentially bringing in those individuals as members through the process. But where did this all start? It, the, the idea is, is it's sort of the, a, a question of where the market is going from a consumer perspective, really. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where this started, right? So these fintech originators, you, know, you always hear this this uh, concept in, in the industry. You've been to conferences. I'm sure you've heard this concept of, you know, we have to worry about these fintech originators disrupting our our business model or eating our lunch, if you will, right? And, and, and those kinds of concepts. And so the impetus behind this rule was to really think about the regulations and and what is preventing credit unions from partnering with fintech originators, developing robust relationships with third parties in order to make sure that they are not getting disintermediated from their members and not getting disrupted, you know, and that they're working with fintechs in order to accomplish the goals of their membership and serving the needs of their membership. And it's really kind of an age-old problem. I always, when we talk about this, I give the example of indirect lending, and 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 you think about indirect today and how part and parcel it is to the credit union industry, right? Well, there was a time when dealers were uh, auto dealers were disrupting the credit union business model because they were financing the cars in house in the, mm-hmm. in the dealership, and credit unions weren't at the table there. They weren't part of that process, right? And so. The industry worked to innovate. Some of that was regulatory by allowing for some um, integration of indirect lending into uh, the the rules and regulations. You know, the concept is in there. And then it was also working to innovate like companies like Origins and others that are out that were out there building relationships with dealers in order to make sure that credit unions were at the table in those dealerships. So this is really coming from that same concept that we wanted to make sure that credit unions could have a seat at that table with this new innovative financial technology marketplace. 
Got it. Got it. Now, are there any, you know, meaningful differences between the final rule and what was proposed? It seems like it was it was largely finalized as proposed. Is that right? It really was. There was some tweaks in in the language, uh, more on the loan participation side around, you know, this concept of of indirect lending and originating lenders and those kinds of things. There were some tweaks in that area. But for the most part, the rule was finalized as proposed. And from our perspective, the concepts that were in the proposal that we were advocating for still remain untouched in the final rule. So we really were able to accomplish what we what we set out to do. Yeah, that's great. And I know NAFQ was generally supportive of, of the rule as well. Um, and so we were happy to see this finalized and, and pretty quickly at that. So it was right. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, I have to, I have to congratulate the NCUA board for moving so quickly to get this done. Um, you know, we were working behind the scenes to try and make sure it got done uh, in, in short order, because I think it's important to the industry. Uh, and, and thankfully the board, uh, all three of the board members saw the value in 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 moving forward with this rule, and so uh, we were able to get it done pretty quickly, which is mm -hmm. great. Now, what do you think is the most significant portion of the rule? And you know, looking ahead a little bit, you know, how do you think that that might change the credit union industry? So the most significant thing in this rule is the changes to Part 701.23, which is the eligible obligation rule. And so previously, oh, and I should say that the, the rule is, is going to be implemented on October 30th. So technically, currently, the rule uh, states that a credit union can only purchase eligible obligations of their member loans up to 5% of their asset size. So that was very limiting. If you think about that from the context of developing a relationship with a fintech originator, we talked about the friction of, of membership, right? But if you get past that point, and, 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 and many credit unions are, you, you then have to think to yourself, all right, now fintech lender, we only want to buy a certain amount, and then we have to turn the spigot off because we're limited to 5%. I talked about how the NCUA was able to innovate around indirect lending and dealer and auto dealers. Um, one of the things that they did was put in an exception to that 5% rule that's been in the, in the regs for a long time that said that if you were buying loans indirect from a dealer, they weren't subject to that 5% cap. So you had a little bit of, of flexibility there um, in order to develop more robust relationships with those dealer networks and, and other uh, retailers. So now what this new rule, the most one of the most significant things that it does is it removes that 5% cap completely from purchasing your member loans from third parties, whether they be fintech originators, auto dealers, whatever the case may be. So it allows for credit unions to purchase their member loans and develop really robust relationships with uh, fintech originators, wherein they don't have to manage to that 5% cap. And in addition, they can manage not prescriptively how much concentration risk they have on a particular loan type or a particular uh, uh, purchasing from a particular third party, but they can manage that from their, from their own policies and procedures perspective on how much concentration they want to have on their balance sheet, be it 10%, 15%, whatever the case may be. 
In addition to that concentration risk piece is also the, another change in this rule that really is going to be helpful for credit unions is that there's always been this exception in the rule that says a credit union can purchase from another federally insured credit union without regard to membership or purchase loans in whole or in part. Mm -hmm. But the rule as it stood before this finalization it said that that was only accessible to credit unions, purchasing credit unions that had uh, Camel One, Camel Two rating for the last two consecutive exams, and they were well capitalized for the last six consecutive quarters. So it was limiting. While many many credit unions fit within that, uh, within those parameters, uh, it was still limiting in which credit unions could take advantage of that. And it's it also put some onus on the selling credit unions to make sure that credit unions were in that, you, you know, were, were, were fitting that exception if they were selling in this context. Now that Camel One, Camel Two, and well capitalized piece is completely eliminated. So what that means is, as we go through the flow, a credit union develops a relationship with a fintech originator. They have the memorization piece handled. They can purchase as many loans as they want from that fintech originator, bring them onto their balance sheet. They can hold as much of that as they want from a concentration risk perspective. And in order to manage to that concentration risk, they can sell those loans to other credit unions without regard to membership. So it allows for the free flow of these loans into the credit union system. Uh, allowing for, you know, some the way I see it too is some of your bigger credit unions that are more likely to develop these relationships with the fintech originators, they can spread some of that risk and some of that interest income to smaller credit unions that may not be able to develop these relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about reducing friction. I mean, this seems like another area where where friction will definitely be reduced as a result of this rule, and you know, it really creates a sort of inflow and outflow process, which is is great and could facilitate a lot of growth among credit unions, possibly even, you know, leading to more credit unions getting into that, you know, camel two, camel one, um, you know, risk rating for the long term, because they're just able to diversify their their balance sheets and do more. It's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. Um, it's why we think that this is financial innovation, because for our system, you know, we need to make sure that uh, credit unions are able to build these relationships so that they can bring their member loans into the credit union system, just like the auto dealer example I gave in the past, and make sure that they're still able to serve their members. Because we forget that consumers today, you know, with, with uh, digital and mobile uh um, access, they're not going into their credit union branches anymore and saying, hey, I need a loan. Mm -hmm. You know, they're really more in the market for whether they have to pay a bill or, or, or they're looking to purchase something. And it's at that time that maybe they think about financing because they don't have the cash to, to do it at the time. And they don't think, oh, I'm going to, you know, put my phone down and go into the credit union branch and, and see about a loan. Right. They're going to these fintech originators. They're using their phone to find financing, whether it they be want purchase. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. They want frictionless, right? right? They want it to be right there, right then, right now, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in addition, as the population, uh, the younger population enters the economic system, you know, those future members of the credit union, they're going to be wanting it on their phone and right away as well. And Absolutely. so this rule really, 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 
is going to allow credit unions to continue to be a part of their members and their future members' lives mm -hmm. uh, by being able to develop relationships with these fintech originators and getting those loans on their books. Yeah, to that point, I mean, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how you, you know, capture and bring in Gen Zs. And I mean, this this could be, you know, part of, of the answer uh, for a lot of credit unions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about even the millennials um, and, you know, there was a big push uh, for millennials as they were coming of age in their in their 20s to to not take out any debt. Right. It was part of that sort of post financial crisis. And it was like a no debt sort of approach to well, to and they're life. saddled Everybody's, with a lot of student loan debt as well. And student loan debt, right. They didn't, yeah, exactly. So you got to balance out your they, debt. <laughs> that's exactly right. And they didn't have a good relationship with debt, right? They, they, right. They're, they're, there was pressure there, right? But then what, what I thought was really interesting is the fintech uh, folks tackled that issue from a, from a financial services perspective by creating buy now, pay later. Yep. And millennials started using buy now, pay later at a huge clip because it was zero interest and you just paid over time. Well, that's debt. That's, that's debt. They ju it's just debt in another form, right? And so this is an area where fintech innovated and, and the financial services industry was changing. And now credit unions can develop relationships with those fintech uh, buy now, pay later companies, for instance, or whatever the future offers in the in the financing space and bring those loans into the credit union and not lose those younger members. Mm -hmm. And I mean, from a consumer, you know, risk perspective, it's it's probably best that there be that sort of relationship in particular with, you know, buy now, pay later providers, right? Because the more that those loans can can transfer to traditional depository institutions, the, the better off really consumers are, um, you know, not only from having the the benefit of of that counting toward you know their credit and and building credit down the line but also just because depository institutions are more highly regulated and and supervised that's exactly right yeah and we want those depository institutions to be credit unions right we want to exactly. continue to spread and evangelize the idea that credit unions are a a better choice for the consumer in the marketplace right so what are your thoughts on where the final rule landed with respect to the level of involvement or consultation that is required of the credit union in these indirect lending arrangements um, at the time of the extension of credit? Yeah, so the indirect lending piece that's in Part 701.22, now it's the loan participation area, and it's also in the leasing uh, rule as well, but um, focusing more on loans, you know, the, the indirect lending piece is really codifying what was uh, some opinion letters that have been out there over the years from the NCUA around how indirect works. And so I wasn't super um, concerned or focused on that aspect of the rule when it was proposed. I think it's good to codify that stuff and make sure that, that it's clear in the regulations. I can't tell you how many times over the years I get questions about indirect lending and I have to pull out these opinion letters and show the credit unions or parties these opinion letters and they're thinking, why is this like hidden somewhere from us, right? And yeah. so mm -hmm. I think codifying that is really going to help credit unions to understand how indirect relationships should be working. Now, they did not codify all aspects of what they've said and the, what the NCUA has said in the past about how indirect relationships 
work from a from a you know a, a uh, an operational perspective. So I do think that there still will be questions around sort of you know and we still get them today you know like what does it mean to make the underwriting decision or the exactly. lend the, right. the lending decision right. What does it mean for the the uh, loan to be assigned to the credit union very soon after uh, it's uh, you know the 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 lender the original lender contracts with uh, the borrower right these kinds of things are still somewhat up in the air um, I think that's kind of good especially with the very soon after the, the um, uh, piece of the indirect lending uh, rules because. We don't want the NCUA, and I saw some commentators actually uh, requested this, but I don't think we want the NCUA to say it's got to be in five days or seven days or some mm -hmm. arbitrary number because there are all different kinds of loan types and all different kinds of loans work in different ways. And so we don't want, you know, for instance, a home equity uh, loan. Um, that there's a right of rescission, right? So does that loan need to be assigned, or you don't want it to be assigned until the right of rescission period goes, you know, expires and those kinds of things. And so we don't want arbitrary uh, days put in there. What we have seen in their opinion letters is that that is going to be instead focused on how the industry works and how that lending uh, loan type, you know, how the deal flow works. And as 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 long as the loan is assigned within the normal course of business with those kinds of loans, then it would be very soon after. And 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 they've said that in opinions. And so we, you know, we think that is the best approach. And as far as the underwriting decision, they have letters out there in the past that state so long as the fintech or uh, auto dealer for that matter is using the credit union's underwriting criteria and they're essentially just filling in the you know filling in the credit box if you will mm -hmm. that is as if the credit union is making the lending decision because it's just uh you know formulaic there's nothing sub being subjectively being done by that originator um so i so i do think that this you know to your question i think there will still be some questions around these concepts of what it means to be an indirect loan but uh but i don't i, I don't see any differences in this new rule versus what we've dealt with in the past it's just really codifying uh you know what was in those letters Right, right. That codification is certainly helpful, but sometimes it's best not to have, you know, too many guardrails, too, you know, prescriptive requirements, because then that, you know, takes a lot of the the flexibility out of it, makes it more difficult for, uh, you know, credit unions to operationalize these these relationships and, and engage in these sort of uh, indirect lending arrangements. So uh, I certainly, you know, understand why we would maybe want to maintain some of that vague, if you will, um, you know, view on on the more nitty gritty details. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's been the, uh, a trend at the NCUA board level, really, for, for several years now to move away from prescriptive and more principle-based approach to how uh, credit unions operate. I think it's really the best way to be because not every credit union is the same. Not every credit union's risk profile is the same. And so, therefore, you know, credit unions should be able to operate with a little flexibility and be able to just instead show the regulators how they're managing and mitigating risk rather than the regulators dictating how right. 
they should be, you know, uh, they should be uh, managing risk. Exactly. So long as your internal policies and procedures make sense and you're not you know, exposing yourself to too much risk, then that should be acceptable to examiners. Um, so on that same point um, about, you know, the underwriting process in particular, the, the preamble explains that the board believes that what constitutes making a final underwriting decision may evolve as credit unions implement more, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning based underwriting systems and continue to engage and expand in their fintech partnerships and relationships. So do you think that there is sufficient flexibility in the rules so that credit unions, you know, aren't going to be subject to any sort of supervisory action um, for, let's say, insufficient involvement uh, in the final underwriting decision where, you know, they maybe are relying on some level of automation. Yeah, I, I think this is an incredibly important uh, um, concept and, and issue to discuss, just not just in the context of this financial innovation rule, but just also in the context Generally. of lending in general, yeah. right? Um, I think in in the context of this rule and, and indirect lending, um, what we need to do is think about what it means to make the underwriting and credit decision at the credit union level. So if a credit, for instance, if a credit union is, is using a third party vendor to assist in their underwriting internally for origin, you know, direct loans where, uh, you know, they're using some sort of AI underwriting system or some sort of um, automation tool that makes their underwriting process more efficient and they're using it internally, um, I think that's permissible today, right? Because the credit union would be implementing, while they'd still be making credit decisions, they'd just be working with third party to assist with that underwriting. And I think in this indirect um, area, it's the same concept. The idea behind indirect um, and making underwriting decisions and this and even automation as you as we're discussing is really a matter of is that fintech act, acting as an agent of the credit union when it's underwriting those loans right is it is it acting with the intent that they are going to underwrite this loan in accordance with what the credit union has has um has provided as their underwriting standards and then with the intent to assign that to the credit union right after the loan is originated. And I think if that's the case, then really we are okay. We're, we're, we're in, we're in, in, uh, we're in, you know, a, a safe harbor for this rule. And to the NCUA's point, it will evolve. What, what that, how that works and how loans are originated will evolve over time. But so long as the credit union is approving the processes that the fintech is using in order to underwrite and those fit within the credit union's lending policies, then I think we will be okay on the indirect side. An interesting piece here will be, you know, how that automation evolves, how the AI, uh, you know, the machine learning evolves over time, wherein we get a question of even internally at the credit union, are they making credit decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Or is is the automation or you know the the uh, the the system making the credit decision i think those are are interesting concepts that i i don't think are going to go away either in the indirect space or internally with uh you know credit unions using ai 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we're headed, right? Um, and you know, I think the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has made it very clear that you have to understand how those credit decisions are being made. Um, you know, for purposes of providing adverse action notices, for example, under the requirements under Regulation B. But um, you know, you, for purposes of this indirect lending relationship, obviously, you have to understand exactly how that decision-making process is working, even though you may not understand all of the contours of the complex algorithm. Um, You've got to have a good sense of it. So it's not enough to just rely on the technology, but you have to be pretty, pretty involved in the process. Yeah, I think uh, the future of lending is, is potentially going to be employing more data scientists, unfortunately, (laughs) right? Because you know, you hear the CFPB and some of the other uh, financial regulators, uh, uh, federal regulators out there talking about AI, and they're always talking about data in, data out, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the process. There's a black box, and you're not always going to understand every, as you mentioned, you know, the algorithms and, and everything in that black box. But I think understanding the data going in that's informing that decision and the data that's coming out and making sure you understand that is going to become ever more important. Yes, certainly. Do you think that there's more to be done in clarifying the distinction between participations and eligible obligations and, you know, the respective requirements for those lending arrangements? I know in the past, you know, NAFQ and others have gotten questions about, you know, where, where the line is. Um, and, and some credit unions have gotten confused in, in certain situations. Sure, sure. I think it's really fascinating the way they approached this um, uh, in the in these in this new rule. Um, the uh, we we didn't really advocate for a position on this. I think internally, um, when they were doing the rulemaking, you know, the proposal and then the final rule, I think the the internally the staff said we need to get a better definition here. And the way they decided to do it was say. We're sticking with our definition of a loan participation, but then we're going to change the definition of an eligible obligation in this new rule. And essentially, they changed the definition to say an eligible obligation is anything that is not a loan participation. So it's sort of like a a, it's it's a a definition (laughs) by default. Right. (laughs) But it's going to be very interesting because the definition of a loan participation is very unique. And I mean, I should say it is very similar to what we would think of as an eligible obligation. So I think in the offing, when we get into this and we get questions about, well, is this a loan participation or is it an eligible obligation? I think it's going to come down to whether the credit union is booking it as a loan participation or an eligible obligation. And that will be it. I don't know that it will be. I don't know that the definition um, helps in defining something that is specifically a loan participation. The only thing we have in that definition is that a loan participation is a loan in which the originator sells a part to another credit union or to, uh, to another credit union yet, and that originator stays in the loan for the life of the loan. That's all we have. But the interesting thing is, is that eligible obligations can be sold in part as well. And right. we have letters from the NCUA that say, yes, a loan, an eligible obligation, you know, the, the lender, the seller of that loan can hold 10% of it and sell 90% of it in part. And that's still an eligible obligation 
under the eligible obligation rule. And it just comes down to, I think, again, going back to what I said, it's going to come down to how the credit union from a from a balance sheet perspective and a, and a risk management perspective will want to characterize that loan on their books. Mm hmm. So hopefully that doesn't create any uh, problems in the in the exam process, but I think it uh, <laughs> remains to be seen how all that works well, out. I, honestly, I really do have, I, I believe myself that this will uh, create some confusion. Um, I think this rule in general and how it is implemented at, credit, at the credit union is going to cause some confusion and conversation during the exam process because um, I believe that, especially on the consumer loan side, most credit unions, if they are selling part of the loan, are going to be selling them under the eligible obligation rule because it's a little bit more flexible in the way that they can move those loans. It's not as prescriptive and uh, as the loan participation rule. And so you're going to have a lot of credit unions with eligible obligations on their books. And because the 5% cap went away, and because they can buy them from another credit union without regard to membership, it's the same as a participation and they'll be more flexible to do it under the eligible obligation rule, which to your point is gonna bring, I think some, some interesting questions and conversations, I think during an exam, uh, for especially that first exam as you start to put these loans on the book, right. on the books. Right, now a different area of, of the rule, not you know quite in the um, in the most significant portions, if you will, but uh, still something that was important to a lot of NAFQ's members. Um, you know, has to do with the temporary regulatory relief uh, for loan participation purchases. Now, we asked the NCUA repeatedly to make that temporary relief permanent, um, you know, so that credit unions can purchase loan participations from any one originating lender totaling up to $5 million or 100% of the FICU's net worth. Now, that, of course, expired December 31st, 2022. Um, so now, you know, almost a year later, um, it doesn't seem like there's any interest in uh, making that permanent. Certainly wasn't uh, in the final rule here. So, you know, why do you think the board was uninterested in making this change? And, and you know, what did you see from from your clients and credit unions and in, in the industry? Yeah. So I think this harkens back to the um, the financial crisis. And, you know, there, there was not a limit to how much you could purchase, how much credit you could purchase in participations from one originating lender prior to the modifications to the loan participation rule coming out of the financial crisis. And what the, and I think this comes from somewhat from staff, but also I think there are um, elements of the, of the NCUA board that also have a history of being at the agency during the financial crisis and seeing what happened during that time. And so I think the concern there is concentration risk. It's it's that what they saw in the financial crisis, what, especially in the commercial lending space, was that you had these commercial loans that you, know, you had these credit unions that were buying all of their loans from one originator or one originating lender. And then that originating lender goes under and it's because of those loans and it ripples through the industry. So I think that they that, that the NCUA 
um, agency as a whole, I think, sees risk mm-hmm. in, uh, it, I sees, I'll put it this way, sees systemic risk, I think, to the industry by, um, a, it, by having credit unions have such a strong concentration of loans coming from one lender. The interesting flip to this, going back to what we were just talking about, Anne, is that the changes to the eligible obligation rule that we're seeing today, I actually think that if a credit union sees value in 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 purchasing pieces of loans from one originator because the originator has this robust relationship, if you will, with a good fintech originator or whatever the case may be, they can now do so under the eligible obligation rule and what we've just been discussing. And there is no limit to how much you can buy from one originator under the eligible obligation rule. Yeah. So, so how do how do we <laughs> square that flexibility with with this concern about concentration risk? No, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I don't think they square, but I think from our perspective and from the industry's perspective, we have a little bit more flexibility now mm-hmm. under the eligible obligation rule to to get us to where we were during those pandemic uh, temporary relief provisions that were revoked under loan participations. Okay. So that is that is helpful, one potential option. But again, you know, we were just talking about this. Come exam time, <laughs> we may I see um, some some issues crop up. So certainly um, you know worth treading lightly in in this space and and working with your I, you know regional uh, director um, to, to get some clarity. Right. I, I would always say that uh, dip your toe so that you can have that discussion with your your exam team that comes in or the supervisor examiner or or, or even the regional director if if um, you know taking it gets it goes that high but dip your toe in and have good conversations with them so they understand how you're managing risk how you're mitigating risk right. and how you're using the regulations as they've been implemented uh, so that you're not in a situation what we don't want to see, is especially the smaller credit unions and you know I feel for them they want to find ROA and they want to they want to be able to you know provide great services for their members um, but I would suggest not over concentrating in these kinds of loan purchases especially through that first exam cycle dip your toe in show them how you're doing it show them how you're mi- you're mitigating risk and then you know move move the risk profile up from there uh, in order to really get that ROA mm-hmm so we talked a little bit about how you know we might want to see a little more clarity when it comes to you know field of membership and the memorization process. Uh, also, potentially down the line, you know the use of AI machine learning um, in the underwriting process. Are there are there any other next steps that the NCUA may want to contemplate to further facilitate indirect lending arrangements and just innovation in lending more broadly? So one of the things that we've been uh, advocating for for quite some time is that we think credit unions should have more flexibility to be able to invest in financial technology companies. Right now, the only way that a credit union can do that is if that financial technology company agrees to be a CUSO and and, and contractually agrees to comply with the CUSO regulations. And those regulations are, are constrictive for that financial technology company. The main reason is, is that the, if they agree to be a CUSO, they have to agree to primarily serve credit unions and credit union members. Well, they're, they're not all gonna wanna do that because 
um, you know, they have broader, a, a broader um, business model and a broader business plan to serve potentially many verticals, whether that be just serving banks or maybe even serving other companies like insurance companies and, and, and the like. And so that limitation really, really prohibits and, and restricts credit unions from having a seat at the table when we talk about financial innovation, right? And one of the best ways to have a seat at the table is to be an investor and to actually be part of, that, part of that financial technologies uh, a company's cap table someone that's part of their more of their stakeholder than just a, a potential client of theirs right and so we think that uh the ncua should implement and move forward with proposing a new rule to allow for credit unions to invest in financial technology companies outside of the qso rule mm -hmm. and the interesting thing here is that the federal credit union act actually has in place the ability to do this because when we look at the credit union's investment powers under the act it states that they can invest in uh for-profit companies but there's period. a limit right well the limit comes in under the loan on the lending powers mm -hmm. under the lending powers in the federal credit union act it says it can loan to uh credit union organizations translates to QSOs, uh, up to, or uh, that primarily serve credit unions and, and or credit union members. So it's under the lending powers where this primarily serves piece comes in, not under the investment powers. Um, it's silent under the investment powers. So we believe that the NCUA does have the authority right now to be able to move forward with uh, true financial uh, investment, in financial technology investment innovation, which I think is really the next step here. All right, great. Well, we'll stay tuned, and um, you know, NAFKI would certainly support you know that sort of change. So we're happy to to work together to make that a reality. Absolutely, yeah. I know we've talked about that in the past, so I know you guys have been very, very uh, supportive, which is great. Yes. Any other comments on the proposed or the now final rule um, or financial innovation generally for our viewers and listeners? Well, I, the only thing I would say is I encourage people to uh, reach out to to us or to you and to talk about the rule and and its and its value to the industry, making sure you understand it. But I really, really, really think that credit unions need to get out there and see the value of this, see the innovation value that and the way that they can uh, in, improve their balance sheet and manage their balance sheet risk as well. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just really excited about it. I'm glad to, I'm happy to talk about it and, and, and excited I got to share with your with your listeners. Excellent. We're, well, we are thrilled to have you and thank you again so much for joining me for this episode on the new financial innovation rule. I'm sure that a lot of our viewers and listeners will uh, find great value in, in your um, explanations, a lot of the key elements of the rule and where we go from here. So thank you again, Brian. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. All right. Fantastic. Well, thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. If you enjoy watching or listening to The Cup, please hit that subscribe button and the like button. Turn on your post notifications so that you get uh, alerts about new episodes when they drop. And please send us your recommendations about topics that you'd like to hear about in future episodes. We always love hearing from you. So thanks again. And until next time.